Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, here comes the Fed meeting. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. So what's next for the Reserve Bank of Australia? Continuing the pause on interest rates or a hike? I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where it looks like the 2024 election season is already heating up. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where final preparations are being made for the coronation of King Charles III. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Amy Morris. We begin today's program with a look at the Fed. A key index of underlying inflation that's closely followed by the Federal Reserve remained elevated last month. Joining us now to talk about it and some of the other data we've seen in the past week, Bloomberg's Michael McKee, our global economics and policy editor. Michael, it is a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We had a lot of data out on inflation this past week. How does this overall tilt things for you in terms of what the Fed does at the upcoming meeting? Let's let's just start with the inflation data that came out Friday. Well, basically, I don't think it changes a whole lot about what they're going to do, and the market reaction sort of reflects that, because they had signaled they were going to do another 25 basis points because inflation's too high, and though headline inflation in the PCE numbers, which they watch, came down significantly, it's still more than double what the target is. So the Fed will raise 25 basis points. We did get a sort of flat reading on uh personal spending, consumer mm. spending in March. And the Fed will have to decide if if we're really seeing a whole lot of um, the previous uh, tightenings that they've done hitting the economy and whether there's a risk that the, we go into recession or not. So uh, the question will be what they say about what they do next, not so much what they're going to do uh, on Wednesday. A sidebar here, uh, personal spending is unchanged. Personal income rose. You mentioned personal spending. So what what's happening there when the personal income goes up, but spending is lower or unchanged? Well, it's interesting. Uh, as long as incomes are going up, people have the money to spend. And the savings rate went up, so they were socking away uh, some of what they were getting. Uh, and there has been a theory that they would start to run out of money because they would have spent down all the stimulus checks they got last year. That hasn't happened yet. But we did see a big rise in spending in January, a smaller rise in February, and now a flat reading for the month of March, which suggests consumers are pulling back. Now, is that because of inflation or just because they bought everything they wanted to back in January? We don't know. Uh, So uh, we'll be watching the months to come, as will the Fed. Uh, One thing that happens is we had a late Easter this year, and usually that affects uh, spending numbers. Uh, They get moved from one month to another. So let's see what happens with April and whether we really have a slowdown or uh, whether the Fed has more work to do. 
Is that what the GDP data told you as well? Yes, uh, GDP was heavily skewed to uh, improvements in January, and things slowed down as the months went on. Uh, GDP also told us that businesses had uh, stopped investing almost, and that was a, f- a first sign that maybe what the Fed has done is starting to have an effect on decision-making. Now, we had a lot of on-air guests here at Bloomberg over the week that saw recession signs pretty much everywhere they looked. Uh, They are looking at forward data. They claim the data the Fed is looking at is backward-looking data. Uh, Is there validity to that? What say you? Well, there is validity to it. Most of the data, just by its very nature, is backward-looking because it's compiled of what's Mm -hmm. already happened. Uh, But um, some of the data that people focus on, including employment, is even uh, more backward-looking in the sense that the last thing companies want to do is get rid of people. And that's especially true now after they had a hard time hiring people back after the pandemic. So uh, the last sign you're going to get, perhaps, of a recession is a change in the labor market. That said, the labor market is still remaining very strong. Uh, We'll see next Friday whether we get a uh, strong reading for the April jobs report. But uh, what we've seen in terms of uh, Uh, jobless claims, uh, things like that, have uh, shown that uh, right now we, we are not seeing companies back off. This is your wheelhouse, watching everything the Fed says and does. Are you noticing any subtle shift slightly that would tee us up for what they might be thinking about doing next after the meeting? Not really. Uh, Those who think they should do more have basically said they should do more. People like Jim Bullard of St. Louis um, uh, suggesting that we need to go above five and a half to get uh, restrictive enough monetary policy. But most have uh, stayed with the idea that 5.1 percent as an effective rate, which they put into the dot plot, is uh, going to be good enough. And uh, 5.1 as an effective rate would imply that the range would be from five to five and a quarter. So that would mean one more rate increase. And then uh, they could decide whether they need any more or not. And the suspicion basically among analysts is that we're going to see uh the Fed on hold because they've gotten close enough to a restrictive level and there are concerns about going too far. So they'd like to wait and see what happens in the economy before they get uh, before they would do anything more. And we are talking with Bloomberg's Michael McKee, our global economics and policy editor. And let's build a little bit about what you were talking about just now. Um, Any sign the Fed might be thinking about the split economy, wealthier people doing pretty well, those on the lower end of the pay scale struggling to make ends meet. We've seen plenty of surveys that show quite a number of people of all ages living sort of hand to mouth. A lot of millennials, by the way, in a recent study uh, that shows that generation gap is growing. I was going to ask you, can you lend me $10 for lunch? Uh, (laughs) No, um, the Fed would say there isn't much they can do about it. What they can do is try to set the economic conditions that would provide for maximum employment, because if you have a job, you have a much better chance of having enough money to at least eat on. And mm-hmm. that's that was their uh, sort of policy leading up to the pandemic, that they would keep rates low because they wanted to spread the, uh, 
the good labor market conditions to those who were at the lower end of the income scale. And coming out of the pandemic, we did see that uh, wages for people uh, on a a percentage comparison basis, wages for people at the lower ends went up faster than for people at the higher end. Now that's started to change some, but the Fed can't do a whole lot about it. Their first priority is inflation, so they're going to keep interest rates high, and that will uh, hurt people who would like to borrow and can't afford higher interest rates. So to that extent, there is a problem. But uh, as long as unemployment remains very close to uh, the levels it is now, people are still doing okay. But uh, inflation is a tax, and if you spend most of your money on food or energy, uh, it's going to really hurt you. We saw some housing numbers as well this past week. What about the housing market is is happening? What, what's that tell you? Well, the housing market is usually one of the first, and I think this time it was as well, to respond to higher increase uh, in interest rates because that's the cost of buying a house is what you right. pay for your mortgage. Uh, so we did see a real drop-off in home sales and a drop in uh, uh, the number of homes that were for sale. That seems to be starting to turn a little bit, which is hard for the Fed to figure out. This has taken a, you know, a long time for it to play out in the economy. It's, it's a weird post-pandemic situation, but we're starting to see uh, housing be less of a drag. It's not, uh, it's not healed. It's not better. It's not a thing you want to go rushing out to invest in. But uh, it is starting to be less of a drag, which could mean uh, good news for the Fed, because a lot re- revolves around housing in the economy, uh, it, not only just the cost of construction, and uh, and that sort of thing, but also uh, when you buy a house, you buy new carpets or new furniture or things like that. Sure, so it can make a big difference when housing is uh, significantly growing. What's the key factor for you? What piece of data really tells the whole story, or does that even exist? There's nothing that tells the whole story, but I think the things that you're looking at are a combination of the jobs report. You want to see uh, the the economy. What the Fed wants to see is that we create fewer jobs each month. We want to create enough jobs to uh, give one to everybody who's looking for one, but not so many that we have trouble attracting workers. Uh, and at the, the same time, then we are looking at the inflation data and uh, you know, pick your indicator, but basically uh, you want to see inflation continuing to come down uh, month over month so that progress is being made. Uh, those are the two things that sort of signal what the Fed is going to do and uh, where the economy is. Now, for the next meeting and a couple of meetings after that, we're also going to be looking at the senior loan officer survey to see if all the problems that we have had in uh, the banking system uh, turn into uh, lack of credit if banks pull back on lending because they're nervous about all this. Um, that could hurt the economy. That could slow the economy even more. It could affect what the uh, Fed does. They may not feel like they have to raise rates as high if banks are tightening credit significantly. But we just don't know at this point yet. And that will come out the week after next. So uh, we still have to wait. That was our global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend in the UK, the final preparations are underway for the coronation of King Charles III. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. Up later in our program, it's not even summer yet, but the November 2024 U.S. presidential election is coming right at us fast and furious. But first, in the U.K., the final preparations are underway for the coronation of King Charles III. The event will be marked with a church service and an extra holiday in the U.K. and an expected influx of visitors from around the world. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Amy, it's been almost eight months since Queen Elizabeth II passed away and King Charles III was elevated to the throne. Next weekend, we'll see the formal events marking his coronation, an event that hasn't happened in the UK in 70 years. To discuss what is planned, I'm joined in studio by our UK correspondent Lizzie Burden and by Bloomberg Pursuits reporter Sarah Rappaport as well. Welcome to you both. Lizzie, can you talk us through exactly what events are planned for the coronation, or at least what we know about them at this stage. So it's expected to be about half the length and a quarter of the guest list of the Queen Elizabeth's coronation back in 1953. So about an hour and a half long and 2,200 guests. You're going to have the service at Westminster Abbey on May the 6th. It'll start about 11am London time, or probably precisely knowing these kinds Indeed. of events. Uh, and at the time of the of recording with you now, the royal family hasn't officially released the order of service. But we do know that the day begins with the King's procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey. You'll likely hear the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, presenting the new King to the people and inviting them to say, God save King Charles. Then he'll receive Holy Communion. He'll be anointed with oil. Anyone who watches the crown will know that that's the bit that might not be televised because it's holy. It's a tradition that can be traced Mm. back to the Old Testament. It symbolises the divine blessing of the monarch Uh, and you'll be pleased to hear that the oil isn't made anymore of whale's stomach lining as it was in 1953 the new recipe is made of oils harvested a little more green for the new king exactly he's uh, he's into that yeah Yeah. from the mount of olives and they've been pressed just outside bethlehem they've been perfumed with essential oils lovely okay well you're painting us quite the quite the floral picture well it's not over yet right then he's going to be invested with his regalia 
his crown, his ring, his scepter. And then he'll be crowned by the archbishop, rise from the coronation chair and sit on the throne. And that's usually the point at which the aristocracy would pay homage to him by touching the crown, kissing his hand. But that bit, again, is likely to be slimmed down because the number of hereditary peers uh, in the House of Lords, of course, has been cut. And then you'll have the king and the queen consort Camilla going back to Buckingham Palace in an even bigger procession than they arrived in. You'll have thousands of armed forces personnel. And then when they get to the palace, only the working royals will stand on the balcony for the wave. Should we practice our wave? <laughs> okay, so a lot of preparation clearly it. has gone into this. <laughs> um, and the, uh, don't forget the uh, Golden State coach. Very true. Yes, very true. Something to watch out for. Notoriously uncomfortable. Right, I, ha- I, ha- yes, I haven't been in it, it I have to say. It back from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Lizzie, so some of the details still yet to be publicly announced, but we do, there has been a lot of discussion about who's going uh, to this event. What do we know? Yeah, we're expecting an array of foreign royals, heads of state and politicians. And that's actually new because previously the ceremony was meant to be between the monarch and their people in the presence of God. But King Charles is said to be inviting the likes of the Sultan of Brunei, the King of Jordan, they're friends of his and it's also a gesture of soft power and diplomacy. You're also likely to get lots of politicians. Originally uh, we're told it was expected to be about 20 MPs and 20 peers but the Telegraph newspaper's reporting that those numbers have more than doubled now because everybody's been jostling for an invitation. Mm. Um, And of course all his life the King's been very involved with charity work so there'll be lots of representatives of his many causes but who isn't coming is probably going to get as much attention as who is. So Joe Biden, the US president, has already confirmed that he's sending his wife Jill instead. That's maybe a sign of Britain's diminished place in the world since 1953. But, but also, Lizzie, the American presidents never go, right? I mean, historically, they've never been to a coronation. It's, I mean, Jill's going, but it's, it's not it's not as a yeah. snob it's just well he's it been at it pains look, to say doesn't look great for american presidents you know having the way america came about to actually go to a coronation right he's been at pains to say that it isn't a snob yeah uh, so that's the official line and i shouldn't like to descend into royal tittle tattle Stephen, but even though it's a slimmed down version compared to queen elizabeth ii's coronation you'll still see almost the whole royal family except the Duchess of Sussex. Indeed, of which much, much ink has been spilled. Uh, so Sarah, those are some of the invited uh, guests, but there's a lot of people who are coming to the UK uh, for this event. This is something that you've been writing about. Tell us about what the expectations are around tourism. Well, a lot of Americans are coming. Funnily enough, there's a study saying Americans will be outspending Brits by a great deal at London hotels over the, over the long weekend. Don't you always? <laughs> yes, but in this case, this is more so than usual by a good 8% in the data. So um, they're going to account for 32% of all revenue in London hotels over the coronation weekend. Normally, we account for 24. So it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice big jump. Okay. You know, Americans don't have a royal family, as we're all aware. Maybe the Kardashians or the Kennedys, <laughs> but um, not an official royal family. No, so we're going to come. The, all the hotels are really jumping on the bandwagon. The Dorchester brought out their 1953 decor. It looks amazing. If you want to go to Park Lane, have a look. Okay. All the hotels have more tea than you can chuck in, Buc- in uh, Boston Harbor. Lots of, you know, <laughs> king-themed cocktails, teas, royal stays. So there's real business in this there then, really trying to attract. There really is a lot of business. And the hotels are getting booked up. Um, the Goring, which famously Kate Middleton stayed at before she got married, mm-hmm. is fully booked. And that's one of the closest hotels to uh, Buckingham Palace. So there's a lot of business in there for tourists. And it is 
largely Americans wanting to come and splash the cash with, with, the, with the weak pound as well. It's easier for them to come and do that. I should Airbnb my flat. <laughs> it's too late yeah. now, Lizzie. Um, what about then the offerings that have been put on for tourists? You talk about some of the, the food and drink uh, options there, Sarah, that, that, that have been laid out for the visitors who are coming. But what about activities or other things that are going on in London that people could well, be Well, for attending? very rich visitors, um, Royal Salute is uh, launching a $25,000 bottle of, of whiskey for the King Charles III edition. Wow. I actually went to the launch party. It was at Westminster Abbey. Okay. So I had an after-hours tour. I got to see the place where Charles will be crowned <laughs> and out of dinner and, try, and tried this whiskey. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it's printed on a card. It's a listed company, right? And they're putting on a King Charles edition. And, um... Yeah, $25,000. If you don't have that, there's plenty of other fun places to get cocktails or drinks or, or do walking tours and get the history, right? Because the city's not seen a coronation in 70 years. You don't have to be a royalist to think it's a little bit exciting for a historical event to, to watch it. Yeah, and for, for many people, it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance to be in the city where it's happening. Um, most people weren't around the last time there was one. <laughs> indeed. Um, like Broadly speaking, is this expected to be a big boost for UK tourism? Uh, it is and it isn't. UK tourism is actually doing quite well already. There's a lot of pent-up demand. And like I said about Americans, they're, they're already here. They're already mm-hmm. spending a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Lizzie, let's let's talk a bit about the sort of the backdrop to all of this economically. I mean, could this actually be an important boost to the UK economy? Well, certain sectors will hopefully get a boost. So UK Hospitality reckons that pubs and restaurants will get a £350 million boost to sales. But usually on balance, bank holiday days actually dent the economy because the extra spending on pubs is worth less than the reduced output in factories, the productive parts of the economy. So last year's Platinum Jubilee bank holiday was estimated to have hit the economy by £2.4 billion. But it's really, really hard to calculate this stuff. And often you get a bounce back the following month. So you see people catching up on the work they otherwise would have done. So you could say that economic activity is just displaced and not totally lost. Um, and the good news really is that it's not expected to tip us into recession. Yes. Which so of course, drink up. Indeed. Thank you to Bloomberg Pursuits reporter Sarah Rappaport and to our UK correspondent Lizzie Burden. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Amy? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we return to Washington as the battle lines for the 2024 U.S. presidential election are becoming clear. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Morris in Washington with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The battle lines in the 2024 presidential race are starting to take shape, and we could see more action this coming week. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and sound on co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Amy. It's only April 2023, but the 2024 race is already in full swing. We have a number of presidential candidates who have declared that they are running, including Finally, President Biden. We had long expected it, but he finally announced he is going to seek a second term in a video this past week. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do. And as he begins his attempt to try to convince voters to let him finish the job, we're already starting to see the Biden campaign ads roll out. Joe Biden has made defending our basic freedoms the cause of his presidency. The freedom for women to make their own health care decisions. The freedom for our children to be safe from gun violence. The freedom to vote and have your vote counted. For seniors to live with dignity. And to give every American the freedom that comes with a fair shot at building a good life. In small towns and big cities. The drama of that ad. And his potential opponents are out there buying up ads too, including former President Trump, who currently is seen as the GOP frontrunner, but is trying to fend off other contenders in the Republican Party, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who hasn't even declared that he's running yet. Listen to this Trump ad from this past week. I thought DeSantis was one of the good ones, but he's just another career politician. America needs Trump. Make America Great Again, Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. So buckle up, everyone, because the ads have begun and they're not going to stop for quite some time. Let's get more on this 2024 cycle now with Nancy Cook, who covers all thing politics for us here at Bloomberg. Nancy, thanks so much for being with us. I'd like to first start with one of the subjects of that ad we just heard, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. As I said, he is not yet technically a contender in this race. But the rumor has always been that once the Florida legislative session wraps up, that's when we'll see him announce. Well, May 5th, I believe, is when we see that adjournment. Could we actually see him announcing within this coming week? I don't think so. So what has to happen is there's a there's a law in the Florida books that basically says that if you already hold higher office, you have to resign before um, you can actually run for a different office. And so the Florida legislature has to tweak this law and they haven't fully finished doing that yet. So they've got to 
do that before he can actually declare. And and I think that we are likely to see him declare, you know, any time I would say between like late May and mid-June. I was told yesterday they're really eyeing like the first two weeks of June, um, although there there is a chance that they could you know, do a presidential exploratory committee before that. Um, He's really under pressure to get into the race because while he hasn't declared, he's been certainly making all the moves for a presidential candidate. He's been to South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada. He put out a memoir. He's done a book tour. Right now he's in Israel. He just went to Japan. So he's really been making all the moves of a presidential candidate. Um, but because he hasn't declared yet, um, it's really given uh, the former president, Donald Trump, a lot of time to attack him and try to weaken his candidacy before he's even declared. And we've really seen a big drop in the polls um, from DeSantis in the last three months. Yeah. And we know that former President Trump's polls numbers have picked up and were aided in a big way by his indictment in the state of New York. And on the subject of Trump, it really does seem like DeSantis is the only one currently that he feels like he's running against in this primary. You don't really see him going after the likes of Nikki Haley or Rick Scott in the same way. Absolutely. So the Republican, the polling on the Republican primary field is basically Trump has been leading everything. DeSantis is trailing him. Um, you know, the margins sort of vary. Um, and then everybody else. So if, if Trump is polling at like 46 percent, DeSantis, you know, at this point is polling at 26 percent. And then Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and all these other people are really polling anywhere from like six percent to two percent you know it's really really low and so the republican field is interesting because there's a lot of people who have talked about getting in it you know uh, new jersey governor chris christie has talked about getting into it at some point but he's not in yet but but these other candidates just really haven't gotten traction so far well and on this point after we saw this past week president biden formally finally entering the race there was a lot of conversation about how in polls of voters general election preferences biden in theory leads trump Biden doesn't necessarily, though, lead other potential Republican candidates in the general should they be able to get through the primary. That's absolutely right. So in polling that we have so far, it shows Biden beating Trump again and again. But DeSantis um, in some of the polls beats Trump. Um, But the thing that we've seen with Republican primary voters so far is like they're not gauging their desire about who to vote for just against who can beat Biden. They're really mm-hmm. gauging it on like sort of who they like, whose policies they agree with. And I think that what we've seen over the last few months is that Trump really has a very strong grip on the Republican Party still. You know, people, some people hate him, but a ton of people love him. And he has really managed to hold on to this base of roughly 30 percent of Republican primary voters. And yet he still is ultimately going to have to come out top out on top in the primary race if we are to see a 2020 rematch between Trump and Biden. Biden, in theory, doesn't have to do that, right? He's pretty much guaranteed to be the Democratic nominee. No other major contender has emerged to challenge him. So at what point does the president actually have to start campaigning? What does he do now? Now that he's announced, what does he do next week, the weeks that follow? So Biden is campaigning so far this week because he's meeting with donors this weekend in Washington um, to sort of outline the campaign and some of his senior staff is too. But then what we're expecting him to see is really just just go back to business as usual at the White House for a while. He has the bully pulpit of the White House. Um, you know, he can travel, make speeches from the Rose Garden. These are huge advantages being a, an incumbent in a reelection campaign. And we're not expecting his campaign to really heat up until next 
next year. Um, he's just going to continue to govern. He's going to do some foreign trips and just really show the American people that he's working for them. That's the message that they're trying to get out there. You mentioned donors. We have seen within major Republican donors them start to maybe question who they're going to support or at least not be putting money directly toward any one candidate right now. Does President Biden face that same problem or are all Democratic donors pretty much in line with him? Well, the Democratic donors that we've talked to at Bloomberg are planning to support Biden. I would say that they feel like they didn't get a ton of love from the Biden White House over the past two years. However, and many of them have reservations about uh, Biden's age. He's 80 right now. Um, and they're worried that he sh- will be too old by the end of a second term. However, they're very worried about the threat of a second presidential term for Trump. And, and they're going to still support Biden. They're going to open up their pocketbooks. You know, they wish there was a little bit more of a charm offensive from the White House, but that's not going to stop them from supporting him. And as you alluded to, in the meantime, Biden does still have to do the business of, of being president. And in part, that is includes ongoing debate over whether or not he's going to negotiate with Speaker McCarthy at all when it comes to the debt ceiling, which is why the timing of his announcement struck me this past week was because you have this ongoing battle that regards the full faith and credit of the United States and you pick this moment uh, to say, hey, I'm running again. How do you think the debt ceiling drama colors this race at this point? Does it at all? Well, I think it colors the race because what pollsters keep hearing from Americans is that they are very worried about the economy. And and some feel like the economy has even dipped into a recession officially, even though it hasn't. And so what the debt ceiling does is it just means that it puts more pressure on President Biden to solve this problem and the Democrats as well, or the Republicans as well, because if uh, there's a default or even a risk of it, it could really hurt the U.S. economy. And that in turn will hurt um, President Biden's economic message. Yeah, we'll see what happens between the president and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who, by the way, as we're looking ahead to next week, is going to be in Israel on Monday, only the second Speaker of the House to actually visit Israel and address the Knesset. So that's going to be uh, something interesting to watch in this coming week. And Nancy, we trust that you are going to be watching this all throughout the next year and change until we actually get uh, to November 2024. Nancy Cook covers all things politics and the White House for us here at Bloomberg. Thank you so very much. And Amy, I'll send it back to you. Bloomberg's Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thank you, Kaylee. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Decision Day for Australia's Central Bank. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. The U.S. is not the only country with a big, closely watched central bank meeting this coming week. For more, we head out to the Pacific region and Daybreak Asia hosts Brian Curtis and Doug Krisner. Amy, we look forward to the Reserve Bank of Australia meeting in the coming week. Inflation is slowing faster than RBA projections. And what that might mean is that the RBA will extend its pause in hiking interest rates. Gains in the consumer price index slowed to a rate of 1.4% in the first quarter of this year. That is down from 1.9% in the final quarter of last year. And the decline has pushed down the year over-year inflation rate to 7% from 7.8% in the prior quarter. 
So we have the next meeting to think about, and we also hope to get some clarity on some of these recommendations made by the recent independent review of the central bank. And joining us now is James McIntyre, Bloomberg Asia economist. So, James, you've written that it's not just the speed that we're seeing with disinflation, but it's some of the details. What are some of those details? The speed. So you mentioned that 7% year on year. The RBA was looking for a 7.4. So there's a lower starting point for them. But the type of inflation that we're getting now uh, is is switching in Australia. So goods inflation has uh, very much uh, fallen away. And this is what we were expecting uh, to be happening. That transitory inflation is is transiting out. Um, There was uh, still, you know, we've still got 7% so far. So what's in there? Uh, In the quarter that we just had, we had some pretty uh, sizable impacts uh, coming through some numbers in the in the health side of things uh, on education so especially university fees was a big factor there we're still getting some domestic and international tra- uh, travel and airfares and accommodation uh, inflation pressures there but but all of those things uh, are, are sort of not the type of inflation that's going to have a central bank wanting to hit the brakes uh, to, to crimp on demand uh, and to kind of you know be concerned about that that wages and that cost pressure and that demand pull type of inflation. Those factors I mentioned, health, education, uh, some of those are, are seasonal or policy-driven things. So there was a decision uh, uh, some time ago that is now flowing through the inflation data to increase the charges on university students, and that's really hit those tertiary fees. Every year, uh, some, some rebate programs for health expenditures wind off, and that gives you the inflation bump this time around. So those things are things that you sort of have expected, but we're a little bit higher than normal, and they're based baked into that services uh, side of the economy or the services inflation measures. And when we think globally, that is where we're still seeing these lingering inflation pressures. And so, sort of thinking and picking up that global inflation zeitgeist, it looks like the Australian infla- uh, services inflation is is still a bit high, but a lot of that is uh, administrative or policy-driven things, not necessarily something that's a, a concern for a central bank. Why do you think it's been the case for the RBA that they were able to to pause ahead of some of the other leading central banks. What you saw with the central bank here, we, we have a monthly meeting schedule at, at current, and let's talk about the, that might change uh, if the reviews recommendations come through uh, from the middle of next year. But they meet monthly. They've been delivering back-to-back monthly increases. But one thing that's very interesting about the transmission of monetary policy uh, in Australia, so where the actual policy rate, where the rubber meets the road and where it begins to hit Main Street on the economy, is that it's much, much more effective here in Australia than in, in, in uh, across a range of other economies. We predominantly have variable rate mortgages, so those floating rates. Uh, none of these uh, you know, 15 or 30-year uh, fixed loans. Uh, Australian mortgages are generally on a floating rate that gets indexed, uh, uh, that, get, that changes every month um, uh, based on changes in, in the cash rate. And so what we've seen there is we've seen those uh, cash rate moves from the RBA have been linked to a rapid tightening. Uh, that is uh, vastly far ahead of a a range of other central banks when you look Mm. at what um, has actually been hitting consumers and hitting households through that debt servicing cost channel of monetary policy. James, thanks so much for your insights. James McIntyre, Bloomberg Asia economist. I'm Brian Curtis with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Amy? All right. Thank you, Brian and Doug. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning, 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. 
I'm Amy Morris. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.